Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Matamor Cronin. And I'm Justin Clark. And today we're discussing the future of cities. With us today is special guest Tim Galano. Tim is an architect and urban planning expert working in New York City. He's also a good friend of mine. We both went to the University of Notre Dame. And it's great to have you on the podcast. Hi, guys. Uh, great to be here. Awesome. So I thought a good way to start out is just to note the trends that are taking place. So there is a massive trend of urbanization that's going on right now. Each year, fewer and fewer people are living in the suburbs and the rural parts of the country, and they're moving to the cities. And if you look at what these numbers look like in over the next 40 years, basically, we would need to build a new city that houses one million people every week for the next 40 years in order to deal with population. And, and obviously, some of that is not going to be in the cities, but that's just the scale of the challenge that, that we're facing right now. So given that we're going to have to either build many new cities or expand upon the cities that are currently in existence, I thought it'd be good to just start with what are the basic fundamentals of urban planning as you've been taught in school and in your line of work, Tim, that people should be aware of as we look forward towards building new cities? Um, so, yeah, uh, I mean, there's a lot going on in those questions, but uh, basically, uh, as as far as city planning goes, you want to uh, have a close location to a certain natural resource. Um, you know, sometimes it's water. I mean, most of the times it, it is water, but um, usually there are other other resources around, be it timber or salt, um, something that can really like be a, um, a, a solid bedrock for your uh, your economy and, and your venture uh, into cityhood. Um, Rome was started there because uh, of the salt plains, and that was a very valuable uh, valuable natural resource. And um, you know, places like New York or Los Angeles are um, in protected kind of inlets and ports. Uh, so. You have these different uh, kind of specializations, and in order for um, you know a city to kind of have a, a mission and kind of a, uh, a, a a course to set set sail towards, you kind of want to have a, a bedrock like that um, to to kind of organize your city life around. And um, as as a, when it comes to actual physical built environment in, in terms of urban planning, um, what you really what is being taught in schools now and what really is kind of being the, starting to be the trend in, in many cities is kind of hyper-focused, uh, mixed-use neighborhoods uh, that are just really small, basically tight-knit communities um, trying to create the this kind of condition from scratch um, within the current fabric of the cities and the challenges that that produces. Because over the last uh, 50 or 60 years, we've kind of uh, gutted our cities uh because of reliance on personal vehicles and uh, mm. and we would build up you know expressways and kind of these these natural or these man-made barriers that kind of prohibit uh, the types of community that uh, we desire as human beings. Yeah, it does seem like there's a challenge or a mismatch between when cities are first created to deal with the short-term needs versus, being created so that they can grow and adapt as the city continues to grow in its population. And, and it does seem like in America, a lot of what's happened is that after World War II, everyone's feeling wealthy. Everyone wants the American dream of the white picket fence in their house and their own secluded little castle in their nice neighborhood. But what comes with that is that because it's secluded and because of what happened as a result, which is lots of zoning where, okay, here's where the people live, here's where the commerce is. And then it's like everyone is in these castles and it has to be connected by highways. And that's not really sustainable when you look at how much the population is going to grow and, and you know, the amount of commute time that you would need in order to have this many people would be astronomical if people are moving to the cities in the same rate that they are right now. So the next question I'd want to bring to you guys is, do you think that the trends of urbanization are going to continue as they are? Do you think they're going to pick up, become even more intense, or maybe they might decrease? And, and there's a couple conflicting things happening, right? So in a general sense, 
people are moving to the cities more and more every year. But in another sense, people can now work remotely from wherever they, they are. You know, you can, I mean, we have like, I've worked with developers all over the world, people who live, you know, wherever they, wherever there's a nice Wi-Fi connection. So I guess, how do you guys look at urbanization and, and what's the need to even be in a city in the first place? Like, what is the purpose of a city? Yeah, so I was trying to define like what the purpose of a city actually is. Like, is it where people live? Is it where people work? Is it where there's a whole bunch of entertainment and stuff going on? seems like it's a very multifaceted definition. Um, but it's, a hard, it's hard to really determine if urbanization is going to continue the way it is, like you said, with remote work, because I really like nature. I like to be in an area where it's easy to access big parks and big areas with oh, trees, and you don't have to deal with a whole lot of people. But at the same time, Cities are awesome. There's something going on all the time in a big city. So, you know, this is this is me, you know, basically saying I don't know the answer to your question, but but there's a lot to consider and I think there's just going to be different types of people. There are going to be people that want to for sure live in a city. There's going to be people that absolutely want to live in a more rural area and then there's going to be people in in the hybrid sense that live in suburban areas where they can easily drive to a city and drive to nature but it's not really either it's some sort of hybrid well, yeah part of the trend you're seeing in um in the united states um, as well as the entire world is that some of those people who may be more prone um personality wise to want to be in the suburbs or uh, an exurb um, are actually finding themselves moving to the city anyway. Um, and one of the, thankfully, one of the um, uh, growing trends in, in uh, urban design, uh, you see it being led by cities uh, all around the world, like Shanghai or um, New York or San Francisco, just kind of a return to um, making sure you legislate green space and, mm. uh, and just providing the incentives, both public and private, uh, to um, to create that within the city, and that's something that's that's really exciting. Uh, basically, every city in the United States, as I mean, most cities, most major cities, have some sort of um, you know highline mimic uh, project in the works uh, where they're trying to convert old rail lines or um, you know defunct kind of right of ways into into you know linear parks, and that's that's one of the most promising. Uh, trends in in the in the fields today most exciting too right yeah i mean I, th I think the incremental the incrementalization of bringing more green space is so good i mean i've seen i've like seen some videos of some cities are basically reclaiming intersections and creating european type town squares so mm -hmm. if there's an intersection that now we have the data we can do the analysis and find out which intersects it which intersection the city could live without, then we turn that into a green space where people can gather, little communities pop up, there's some local stores, and and mm -hmm. I think that's great. And, and also, you know, just taking a, a block that is supposed to be used for cars and making it a pedestrian block, like a promenade, is also a really mm -hmm. nice, nice trend. Mm -hmm. And you think that, um, you would assume, actually, that if, if we do get to this kind of future with... Um, I know it's a topic for later, but if we do get to this kind of future with autonomous vehicles are kind of ubiquitous, um, then then the artificial intelligence would really be able to kind of design the, uh, the or design out the streets that they don't really need anymore. Uh, if everyone's kind of moving at the same at the same rate, it's really just at that point an equation of uh, how do you how do you give cars enough room to stop and let people to get out? You know, mm -hmm. as long as you have enough streets for the actual physical volume of the cars. Um, then you don't need the other ones for cars and they can become be reclaimed as pedestrian streets, which is, you know, basically what they were all originally designed as. Yeah. And one of the things you could even take that a step further and say, let's say we have the self-driving cars, but the transportation was taken underground with something like the boring company like Elon Musk wants to do. Then we can reclaim almost all of the roads. Mm. 
and mm -hmm. make them into parks and then there's going to be a huge there will be basically hybrid like nature parks and cities and it'll be hard to tell a difference because you could be walking down the street and it'll seem like you're in nature I mean, maybe if you look far enough on either side, you'll see, oh, wait, there are windows instead of more trees further away. But it'll still seem very nature-like. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and as I think about what cities I would most want to live in, it's definitely the ones that are the most walkable, that have the most nature parks and, and natural uh, foliage and everything. And one thing that just came to mind is, I don't know if you guys have heard of Nomad List, but it's from the, you know, the guy who Ryan Hoover who developed Product Hunt. He basically created this list for all the digital nomads. So, if you're traveling through Asia or through Europe or wherever, you can basically look at this list of cities and it'll give you a score of how great that city is based on a variety of factors. So some of the factors are, you know, internet speed, air quality, walkability, safety, nightlife, friendliness to foreigners, friendliness to LGBT. I mean, there's all of the, and really these are the factors that you look for in a city. So when we're talking about what purpose does a city serve, I think in the future, it's less about, you know, the fact that, yeah, you can work from everywhere, but are you going to work, want to work somewhere that has an oppressive government and is not really safe and the air quality is terrible and it's a bunch of concrete and everything's quartered off. So if you want to go have fun, you got to go to a completely different part of town from where you go to have your meetings. And, and so I think integrating everything into the way that humans evolve to be in the first place with our smaller bands of 150 people that you know really well. I mean, we certainly don't have to go that far, but going more in that direction, I think is going to be more in line with how people want to live at the most basic levels. Mm hmm. So I, th I yeah, think I, it, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I honestly think um, a lot of people move are moving to the cities because of the sense of community. Um, people mm. get like, I think that in the American model, people get to college and they have this kind of tight knit kind of ownership over the physical environment type community that uh, that you don't really get in a lot of places uh, in the in the country. And, um, you know, yes, there are you know, much more jobs and, you know, opportunity. People like to, you know, cast the, uh, this, the new city, the person who moves to the city as a starry eyed person looking to make it big. But I think oftentimes people just, um, get hooked on that sense of community and kind of being, uh, around, around other people all the time, instead of kind of being the king of your own castle, that's becoming less of a desirable kind of, uh, paradigm. For, for our generation. That might be a good segue into talking about how we move from an urban sprawl to walkable cities. Yeah. Like we've been describing. Well, so okay, you go ahead. Well, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the frameworks there, a lot of these cities that existed across, across the country, even though they were separated by miles and miles of, uh, of, road and turnpike you know back in the day they they were originally you know um walkable kind of main street cities with some farms on the periphery yes but um the last 60 or 70 years kind of has really been uh, um, a new age of infrastructure uh, where we've just been paving over so much of this country uh, with asphalt mm -hmm. and it's going to be there for years it's just I don't know. It's always kind of struck me as a bit of hubris to the, the idea of paving a road because I mean it is kind of a permanent permanent mark on the earth by all by all measures and uh, yeah, it increases it, global warming too because it refracts more sunlight and it creates all of these terrible effects. Where if you instead start planting some trees and getting rid of the concrete, then you're helping our situation. Yeah. Yeah. So the environmental aspect is big, the social aspect, you know, people want to live in these communities, the obviously economic aspect where even though it's true that you can work remotely from anywhere, a lot of companies still prefer that you work where they are and the cool tech companies tend to be in the bigger cities. Although one trend that we're seeing now is moving away from some of the cities that have been the big hubs. 
Like I remember, mm -hmm. you know, The Economist recently came out with this article called Peak Valley, which is basically about making the case that now is the peak of Silicon Valley, the San Francisco Bay Area, and it's only going to be slowly downhill from there. And San Francisco is the city that has the greatest population loss of, of any city, what, what's projected in the next several years. And people, I think they're realizing that you can have a great situation in a city like Austin, Texas, or like Boise, Idaho, or one of these cities that's not quite as big and doesn't have quite as much, but it has other great things like you know, your employees can actually buy a house there because it's not so crazy expensive or the taxes that you're paying in state aren't 13 percent. They're zero percent. Um, so I think we are seeing that trend. So how do you guys see this mass exodus from Silicon Valley as as it being indicative of any sort of larger trend? So um, I think you the last question cut out for me a little bit. I said, so what, how do you see this mass exodus of Silicon Valley being indicative of a larger trend of maybe how urbanization is not going to be, it's not going to be all about the cities that are great today or were great yesterday. It's more going to be about creating new cities and new hubs. And, and I guess, where do you see that going? So I was thinking a little bit about this and it seems, especially as these new technologies are being created, like the self-driving cars, maybe the boring company, that huge companies, especially like Amazon or any of the other big tech companies, can if they're located outside of major cities, they can't. Then people can actually live in the cities and work outside of the cities, but not have that long of a commute. So if there was, if Amazon's headquarters. You know, this isn't going to happen in the foreseeable future because they've already chosen their second headquarters. But they workers will be able to, let's say, take a 15-minute trip, but it's 100 miles outside the city. They just get into their little pod, their little mm. boring company pod, I guess, and get transported over to their company, work, and then come back very easily. And then companies don't have to spend all this money to get real estate in the middle of the cities. People don't have to worry about living so close to where they work. And the commute isn't a factor anymore. So that people can actually have some agency over where they live. Yeah, I can see that being really good for employees and being good for employers and companies. However, I think it might actually exacerbate the problem of urban sprawl because especially with self-driving cars or boring company trains, if you can work on your way to work, then you can live farther from work. So people might be sprawling even more and more as self-driving cars become more of a thing because you can simply be productive and maintain your world of having your castle and living in your favorite city too. Mm. Um, so I wonder if that's going to be counterproductive to trying to integrate these cities in a walkable sense. But I think you're spot on that that is going to be a trend for sure. I think that's, that's an interesting model um, for the, the, you know, this population crisis and specifically. Uh, but, you know, more locally here, at least in New York, the housing crisis um, is it would be it'd be almost basically the inverse of what happened in the 60s and 70s, where everyone moved to the suburbs and you would commute into the city where you have the building stock to house, you know, millions of people in the city. People start moving into the cities and commuting out for work. Um, hmm. That, of course, would need a, a you know, major increase in the uh, abilities and the capabilities of our public transport system. But, um, you know, it is it does feel like we're on the verge of some sort of paradigm shift. Uh, when it comes to when it comes to uh, public transport, be it you know autonomous vehicles or mm -hmm. these kind of large scale tunneling projects. Yeah, I, I also wonder if 
if we do, you know, so the other option, so you guys just put forward two options. One is people live outside of the city and they commute in. The other option is people live in the city and they commute out. I think the third option would be people just work remotely and maybe as VR and AR get a lot better, they simply, you know, dial into Skype calls like we are now, but with some additional technology that makes it even closer to real life. And that obviously has lots of advantages because you can live wherever you want. You can do whatever you want to do. You can live the nomad, the digital nomad dream. But that scenario has a, the drawback that's more about your psyche and feeling lonely, feeling isolated. And basically your life is a parody of a real life. Like you don't actually go and shake hands and have real encounters. It's like there are all these virtual connections that you're making with people and at the end of the day you're just sitting in a in a concrete box you know 10 cube by 10 cube and you're in there and you just are like waving your hands and shouting words for a whole day and it's like is that really the world we want also so so all of these have drawbacks and they all have have pluses i i guess which one would you guys think is actually going to happen and which one would you guys like to have happen? I, I think, I think that if, if we're headed towards a world where, uh, you know, I've heard, you know, on episodes before and you, you kind of just alluded to it where basically everything is automated work. Um, there are, there are communities, there are many, most probably in the country, in the country, um, where people live, live and work in the same place. They don't commute that much. They live and work in the same town, and you know the subsistence they make uh, is enough to you know give give them lodging in that town, and that's actually like a you know a nice community. It's not it's yeah. a, not a terrible deal to have. But I think if things truly do get out automated, I I could see people kind of modeling their lives um, kind of still on that model, even though they don't have to be there to work and they don't have to live there. They just yeah. like will walk town as if it's a normal day instead of you know having the butcher do your thing it'll you know it'll be kind of a, a, a more a robot butcher you know it'll, it'll, it'll almost be like um like you just said a, a parody but almost like a, a, a mickey mousification of your real life a truman show version <laughs> of your life. you're kind of just going around pretending like everything's still normal because that people like that kind of comfort and people it's almost a human it's almost it's comforting to our human or lizard brains almost because we've, we've evolved with that kind of society. So if I yeah. as a possibility, I, I could see that happening. Yeah, yeah that... I agree. I like that too. I mean, that's probably similar to, to what I would do too. I wouldn't want to be locked up. You know, the only other scenario I would see if, if everything was automated is people just disappear into their VR worlds. <laughs> um, so that that kind of defeats the whole purpose of living in or out of a. I mean, it doesn't even matter where you live if you are in a VR world all the time. You just right. need a good internet connection. Um, but but to answer your question, I would say the my favorite out of those three scenarios would probably be to live in a city and either work remotely within the city. So maybe that third option, yeah. because I don't necessarily, I think people underestimate how much time it takes to commute to a job, mm -hmm. whether, whether that's, you know. Yeah. I mean, the, the U S spends 30 billion hours per year commuting collectively. Think about, we could, we could do some pretty incredible things in that amount of time. We could build, I actually saw one estimate. We could build 26 pyramids of Giza. In, in that oh time. My God. Yeah, so so if if we could work, you know, either remotely or have a very short commute to work, because I think there's something to be said about having work friends and yeah. working working in an office with people, having meetings and you know, just having the the true sense of being with people, mm -hmm. that would be a good situation. And so I don't see an issue if the companies were located in an area like the desert in Arizona or mm -hmm. something, because if you just took a little high speed, you know, hyperloop train underground t from L.A. to some 
place in the desert of California or in Arizona or Nevada, that wouldn't be that long of a commute if you're traveling, you know, 500, 600 miles an hour in a tube. Um, you know, obviously the cost would have to come down, but that would that would kind of move city, uh, move companies away from the cities and people could live in the cities and the cities could be full of character designed for the people that live there rather than the companies that are located in the cities. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I pretty much think of cities as your home base. Like you travel to wherever you need to be. You can go on whatever amazing adventures you want to go on. But your city of where you live, that's your home base. And all those things about like on the nomads list, those are all the benefits or detriments of you living in that particular home base. Another trend that I think is relevant is, you know, companies like Google, where you can basically go there. You can even they have places like housing for you. You can, um, you know, they've got like workout facilities in there. They've got like pods, meeting rooms. They've got a cool whole campus like Apple just built this incredible campus. So the other way that things could go is almost like a vertical city within whatever company you're working at. So if you work at some cool tech company and most of the time, because most of the work is automated, you're, you know, just sort of talking, spending times with your colleagues, making more strategic decisions around what should happen next or whatever the human component is of what we are still doing. And you can spend your downtime in the cities, in the parks, playing the ukulele, doing whatever you like to do. And then maybe you even sleep where, you know, in the same place by where your office is. You get a nice slide that takes you from level two to level one. <laughs> I mean, it's it's yeah. like it gets made fun of a lot for sure. But there is something nice about that. And the whole other trend of, you know, we work creating we live, which are basically college dorm room style communities, similar to what you said at the beginning of the episode, Justin, where it's like people go to college. They have this incredible tightly knit community and then they go into the real world and everyone's like siphoned off and you don't get those same sort of human connections. If instead, yeah, you have your own bedroom, but the living room space, the place where you watch TV and play ping pong and drink beers, like that's all communal space. That would be another great way to live that I think would decrease depression rates, decrease suicide rates. Um, you know, and, and increase the number of new businesses coming together because people will be more interconnected. So that would be a great solution, I think, too. Yeah. And that was Tim, by the way, that said that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, the one thing that the one thing that kind of sc scares scares me a little bit. I mean, we've I've done I've done some research on the um, on these company campuses, you see Facebook is very successful with their model of it, Google um, and Apple as well. Um, and they're kind of inward facing uh, places with, with housing actually, um, as you said, available. Um, and that like, something that reads well on paper, uh, and it's just an interesting kind of um, like, what kind of society would that breed with that kind of model breed mm. where um, like you people are almost branded themselves? It'd be and, like a new like a new race, like a new nation state of Googlers. <laughs> yeah, but then you would have like I could imagine like, you know, like some conflicts between like the Googlers and the Facebookers and like they like sieging each other's cities and whatnot. Like, <laughs> it would be pretty quick or espionage like. I, it, yeah. It's interesting to like. It, it, it's almost like you're pledging your uh, your life to this company when you when yeah. you sign up for this. But I think that um, I think that with some taste and you know every big company is wanting one of these campuses now, and it's because it works. Mm -hmm. And it's just something that my brain needs to wrap around, you know. And it's it'll be interesting to see how inward facing Amazon is in New York because that's right. something. Virginia, where you can really kind of surround yourself with highways and parking lots. It's Long Island City, which I was just there last week, and you know, there's really nowhere to hide. You can't, you can't really. You're either, you're either a fortress in the city, or you're, you're part of, you're part of the fabric. And it'll be really interesting to see how that, how that plays out. Yeah, I mean, especially with the way that the AI race is going, we could see a situation where 20, 30 years from now, there are basically two to three players in AI. 
and everyone else doesn't really stand a chance. So it's like we're already seeing this trend begin today where it's really hard to make it as a startup in the long run unless you get swallowed up by one of the bigger startups. Because basically it's like if you grow to a certain size, you either get stomped, like Facebook decides, okay, you're finally a big enough threat and you're not going to sell. So we're just going to outspend you and basically just create exactly what you've created, but better because it'll be tied in with our whole infrastructure of everything else. Or you sell out and then you become a subsidiary of them. And I think as AI becomes more intelligent than the smartest humans on the planet, then that is going to coalesce where there might only be a couple big companies that have their own, you know, so rather than like the Christians and the Muslims and the like in the Crusades, it, it'll be like the Googlers and the Apples. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it'll be like that literally, but I think it could become like that figuratively. Mm hmm. And, yeah, and, I mean, and I think the big question is, how is it going to fare for the regular average Joes of the world who aren't part of Google or Facebook? Like, is the solution going to end up being better for them because they can just play their ukulele in in Bryant Park or in Dolores Park and just chill out? Or are they going to be like begging for coins from the people who work at Google and Apple? There's probably a couple ways. I mean, it really just depends on how we deal with the mass unemployment. You know, if if we have something like a universal basic income to make sure that they at least can live, you know, that people without jobs can live, have a home, do whatever, they they honestly may have a happier lives than the workers even though the workers of these companies are probably filthy rich. Yeah. I I I my <laughs> for the average Joe, my question is: What happens when the AI um, determines that the most efficient um, way to create value is to exploit the average Joe? Uh, because there's there are certain jobs, tactile jobs, that you know, no matter how good AI is, I mean, they would have to be a self it would be a self designing kind of issue. But I think that there are certain things that um, you know only we can do, or like it's what? easier. Well, I, I think maybe some, uh, you know, there, there's probably some professions that won't be taken over. And maybe it's just because of who human beings themselves are comfortable hiring. Um, yeah, but, I mean, I think uh, in, the, in the human professions where it's like, for instance, elder care or something like a yoga teacher or a hairdresser, like certain things where, yeah, you could create an AI that would do the job sufficiently, but you wouldn't get the same emotional connection that you would if you have someone who actually has empathy, not just the appearance of empathy. But I don't know how those people would necessarily be exploited in the, in the scenario you're, you're talking about. Well, I think that when if you if you, if, I think if you had an AI kind of program to create to to create the most value, they would look at mass unemployment, and they wouldn't look at it as as a problem as how do we make these people comfortable, is how do we use these people to create more value, and I think that may, maybe if at that point there won't be any use for them, and it's just a matter of uh, how how right. do we make them comfortable. But so this gets into the question of how do we regulate AI? So how do we make it so where the, yeah. the, the AI, the objective of the AI is to maximize human happiness rather than maximize like monetary value or something Profits, yeah. along those lines? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's a question for someone else because <laughs> the main driving force for AI right now is uh, profits. So yeah. it seems right. like, I mean... It's a hard question. I mean, yeah. it's hard to know exactly where it's going to go because some people think it's going to take, you know, or some people think that general superintelligence may never exist. You know, some mm -hmm. people very close to it, typically the, the programmers themselves d aren't very scared of it. And then typically the people who are, you know, in terms, who are in, charge of all of the long-term strategies think that the, like an Elon Musk thinks that it'll take over and 
you know, either kill everyone or do, you know, do something really bad if not taken care of properly. So you mm -hmm. have these two conflicting camps. Um, no one really knows what's going to happen, which is the scary part. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you think about what is needed to live a good life in the most basic sense, you need food, you need health care, you need education, and you need connection with people around you. And I think when you look at the immense amount of profits that are going to be created, we can cover all of those things, at least in America, for our citizens if we decide that that's what we want to accomplish. And we might even see that AI is better able to help people when they're in cities. So if cities were just kind of, they have a foundational AI that takes care of the security, there's going to be a point where that is probably going to be the safest way to take care of all of the crime. You know, if I would prefer to walk through, let's say, Central Park at night in in some some bad areas if there were cameras and sensors everywhere that where something could immediately take action if i was in danger so yeah. we might see the we might see cities that are just not well i guess they could be governed by ai and take care of the people within those cities and just kind of have a holistic view of the city yeah i think the, the other big thing is that if we are able to take on those things like, you know, safety being one, if we're also able to deal with the massive unemployment, have some sort of UBI, and if we're able to take on the uh, climate change as well, yeah. then I think we'll see a scenario where people are going to be able to live pretty good lives. And we might even see a return to the 1960s style communes. So it's like, yeah, you could live the nice modern life in the city, or maybe you can, you know, compound your UBI with some of your friends' UBI and move out into the more rural country, live more in the way that people used to live, where, you know, you're tilling the land, making your own food, singing around the fire, like all that stuff, Um which, you know, happened not that long ago in Berkeley communes and stuff like that, which would be pretty awesome. So, yeah, especially I mean, the part be... about the environment. I mean, if we, like I was just reading this article about how fungi might be able to play a very key role in actually breaking down any of the byproducts of human activity, like from trash and everything like that. And if we also increase the amount of fungi, I mean, we should do a whole episode on fungi because I have so much to talk about. But <laughs> there's, there's indicators that fungi are actually how forests and mountains communicate among themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's like if we can bring a little more of the natural intelligence to where cities are, then we're basically combining the best of human intelligence, the best of natural intelligence, and the best of machine intelligence. And if we can't come up with a good solution for all of our fellow earthlings with those three behemoths, then, you know, shame on us because we really should. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that actually that reflects a lot what I was gonna talk about in my best case scenario. If if yeah, we segue let's to let's those. move into those. So yeah, let's do let's do best case scenario first. So so similar to what you were just saying, I was thinking of how I would design a city from scratch and also how I would almost have a band-aid solution to an already existing city with a bunch of infrastructure already. Hmm. So the to do the band-aid approach, let's let's just take, you know, New York's an easy example because it's the biggest in the US. So let's say that roads weren't even necessary anymore. We had some sort of underground transport. The subway was, you know, heavily utilized, maybe even more optimized fly than cars. it is now. Yeah, fly cars. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, no. So, um, anyways, like if if we didn't have any of the roads, we can just turn those all into parks, like I kind of already said, and we can also have buildings that aren't just it's not a concrete jungle we can actually have let's say vines growing up the sides of buildings and it, it's almost like a huge green zone but it's also a city 
Um, you know, there's a lot of, there are some issues with growing plants on buildings because some plants like grow into like the structure and can, can kind of damage the, the integrity of buildings and stuff, but there are ways around this. And, and I think if we had buildings that were green, if you've ever seen those giant green walls, I think those are just beautiful. And this is my own personal love of nature. And if we can merge the nature with the cities, we can have all of the activities of the city. We can have comedy shows, music, clubs, whatever people want to do in the same place that all of this nature is, then we don't have to move out into nature and we can have really green cities. Because right now when people move into the rural areas and the suburban areas, it's one of the least um, effective things to combat climate change. Hmm. Because if you if you love nature, you're you shouldn't live in nature is basically how how it works. Mm-hmm. You should live in cities. Um, so, anyways, that that's how I would kind of redesign a New York as long as you know transportation was taken care of. I think that's the key thing. Yeah. And then that would you know we would have basically a grid of forests and then buildings which are the blocks. So if we were to design our own city, you know, just from scratch, let's say it's in the middle of Arizona, but we could create Which, by the way, city. there is a city, uh-huh. Arcosanti. Do you hear about this? Is, is that the one that Bill Gates is trying to fund? I don't know about that, but Arcosanti was this architect and urban planning guy who basically wanted to create the perfect city for walkability. So in the desert mm-hmm. of Arizona, he created this city that's super walkable. Anyone can live there. There's like a couple thousand people living there just as more of like an experiment. But the way it's designed is that it can build outward and, and grow outwards without actually taking up that much more space. So it's compact, complex and efficient it's modular it probably has built certain building blocks that you can use almost like if you ever played like a city's you know sim city type game like just yeah modular design where you you had you add you know a new ward at a time oh yeah you know, i mean one school and one fire department you know it's, it's yeah i was thinking about cool. that in the beginning of this when like you were talking about how you need to build cities near a natural resource i was thinking of like <laughs> Age of Empires, the computer game where it's like, oh yeah, build that city right by the mine. Okay, <laughs> like clicking, but that really is what's going on, just in a much sped yeah. up version. And the game yeah. never gets to the point where there are no more wars that need to be fought and everyone lives happily because that's pretty boring gameplay. But <laughs> that is the goal. So Tim, what's yeah. your best case scenario for the future of cities? Well, I would I would say that. Um, I think that one of the coolest and most aesthetically uh, pleasing um, proposals for dealing with sea level rise, um, which is is going is currently happening and will be a challenge in the future, um, is the notion of kind of taking over all of the um, blocks near the water and just making every kind of uh, waterfront property in every city big green space like a buffer almost like a dune at a beach um mm. and they certainly make for beautiful graphics uh and renderings and uh if you do run the numbers they would um they would perform very very well um that would require a a major political push um but i think that uh, a city that really copes well in the future i think that would kind of be my ideal model to follow also, the notion of sh- shutting down as many roads as uh, possible to vehicular traffic. You see, um, there are Euro- many European cities will have a car holiday, um, maybe mm. once a month or sometimes once a week. I know Paris did it once a week in the summer last year, where they just wouldn't allow cars in the city and just said, you know, deal with it on a Sunday. And um, you know, people there there are mixed reactions to it, but it certainly. Um, it certainly gave people a memorable day, and uh, I think I think it was kind of how, when Houseman redesigned Paris in the 1800s, he, he saw it, he saw it being used. Um, yeah, that reminds but, me of Carmageddon in L.A. 
where they closed <laughs> down one of the lanes of the 405. So everyone in LA freaked out and they're like, you're not going to be able to get anywhere. It's going to be gridlock. So the result was everyone just stayed home during that time <laughs> and hung out with their friends and family. And it was pretty great. <laughs> so it's like Thanksgiving too. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, that's, that, I think that that would definitely kind of be part of my ideal uh, ideal future city. Also, I, there's something to be said about, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about kind of abolish, not, not abolishing, but some of the more radical people abolishing the notion of personal vehicles. Um, there's something mm. to be said about uh, uh, two two wheeled vehicles like uh, like Vespas and kind of things that of that sort uh, where you can really get a basically charge um and it's just i don't know it's 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 a reasonable option for a lot of people who have cars um but they don't realize it uh maybe because uh they've just been so ingrained to think that everyone gets a car at a certain age um that kind of that kind of maybe uh two-wheel only zones or three-wheel only zones well i know in certain countries like for instance in bali it's almost impossible to get around in a regular car Everyone exactly. pretty much drives scooters because you can just go wherever off road in between lanes around, you know, some guy with a cow carrying a cart, and it's so slow if you're in a regular car. But I mean, the problem there is just safety. I mean, they mm-hmm. call them donor cycles for a reason. So I don't know if you could do like a self driving motorcycle, <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, one one alternative that I saw that was pretty cool. Actually, two alternatives. One is modular self-driving transportation. So imagine you get on a train and rather than having to wait every single stop for the next 15 stops, which are irrelevant to you and your journey, you would get on the train. And then when it comes time for your stop or when your stop takes a different path, it would basically break off from the rest of the train so your little train cart would then become its own self-driving car and would take you into your destination so it would be like combining trains with self-driving cars in a much more efficient way Um, and another another alternative i saw was in china there they've created a concept of basically this bus that goes above the cars so it's almost on like skates and then there's like you know two to four lanes underneath this moving bus that's basically glass and a lot of people can go on there and it would not increase traffic at all but it would increase the amount of people who can go from, you know from point a to point b during a traffic jam sorry what was that it would ad- advertise itself during a traffic right jam. yeah speeding we'll like by right above you <laughs> yeah yeah well i it, there's one more um i, I saw there's a in um in China, they also had a self a self driving uh, bus, but it was it was a self driving train, but it was on tires, uh, and you would get on and or you even request it on your phone, and you would get on and enter where you're going, and it would be like a giant kind of Uber share where it automatically figures out the best route in its head, and and there's you know there's no human driver and it'll just take everyone on the most efficient route to get everyone home and it still costs you like one dollar and fifty cents that you know you're you're familiar with for a bus fare, um, yeah. with precision of a of an Uber, um, and it was just it was just really interesting seeing this thing in action. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my, my I guess I'll give my best case scenario now and then we can move on to the worst case. So my best case scenario is pretty much what I summarized before, which is if we combine the best of machine intelligence, natural intelligence and human intelligence, we can find a way to live where everyone is happy, everything's moving in concert with one another. I think the biggest challenge is going to be the environmental aspect of that, just simply because of how much damage we've already done. But I am hopeful that if we really start making changes, like if we start increasing the rate at which we dedicate intersections to be town squares with lots of trees and parks or taking away some streets and making them pedestrian streets with again with trees and using things like mushrooms to break down a lot of our pollution and just just by having trees throughout normal cities would greatly reduce pollution so i think that's actually the single greatest problem i think transportation is going to be a challenge but i think it's one that we're in a better position to to solve and i think that people want to live in cities like what we're describing so 
the the social want for these cities is there. That's why I think that the biggest problem are going to be in government, you know, actually getting this stuff implemented from a political perspective and deciding that it's worth funding. That's going to be yeah. really the biggest. And so I guess I'll, I'll just give my worst case because it's kind of the flip side of that. So my worst case scenario are is basically that we continue the trend of people who have means living in their own sectioned off castles and all of the public space just becomes more and more degraded. I mean, we're already seeing and you know, LA has a major homeless problem and pretty much any public park you go to has is overrun by homeless people, basically. I mean, it's hard to find a park where you would feel comfortable letting your kids go play without watching them attentively. Um, you know, so so that's that's going to be a big challenge is how do we avoid the tragedy of the commons? And I think the worst case scenario is where the tragedy of the commons gets exacerbated and we're basically living in. There's basically two paradigms that are existing simultaneously. One is the paradigm of the wealthy person who lives in their nice castle that has its own air filtration system. So they're getting the best air and the best water, even though it pollutes extra because it's doing a lot of work for that. And they get in their nice self-driving car that they own. They sit there, they do work while they you know, sit through a long commute. They get to where they're going and that's their life. Their life is basically an indoor life or maybe they can vacation somewhere that's far away that still is nice naturally like Canada. And then the <laughs> other paradigm would be people who don't have the, the best means and they're basically like, you know, sleeping in some park that's got trash everywhere and, you know, they're not able, you know, they lost their job because of automation and, and, mm. you know, that would be a, a really terrible situation. But it seems like that's the direction we're heading unless something is done. So, you know, whereas early, you know, whereas we were talking earlier about future of healthcare, where I actually think we're making some good progress in that direction already, like you can feel that the political momentum is there to give people healthcare. Things are actually starting to get proposed and starting to get done with this, with the future of cities and pollution and overpopulation and tragedy of the commons and people living in their own castles, we are not yet moving in the right direction. At least that's what it feels like to me. So I think we can do it. But if I would say the most likely scenario next, I think it's going to take a major wave for us to start making progress. And so we might not start making progress until something terrible happens, whether it's mass unemployment, whether the environmental disasters just get so bad, you know, let's say the big earthquake wipes out Los Angeles and then like a big hurricane like takes out lots of Manhattan. And then we really got to have a come to Jesus moment and be like, okay, here's how we're going to deal with cities from now on. But I think most likely scenario is it's going to take a lot of hard lessons before we actually start making the right moves. Yeah, I mean, I would echo a lot of what you said for the worst case. Now, I kind of, I was, I was kind of thinking about a city. So for the worst case, that was almost a Detroit on steroids. So let's say in the future, at some point, unemployment is extremely bad, and so is overpopulation. And when you add those two things together, especially when you crowd a whole bunch of people into the same area, crime skyrockets and housing rates and everything. Well, I guess it depends on uh, where you live, but you're going to see this inequality. You're going to see crime. And it just it's almost like an archaic mm. and um, anarch. Or there's just anarchy everywhere. Yeah. And I just I would hate to live in a city like that. You know, so basically just Detroit on steroids is my worst case. Like the purge and, almost. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not, not too unlike the purge. And Or like, uh, for my or most... like I Am Legend with all like the hordes of people like climbing up oh the walls. Oh my gosh. Yeah, the, the zombies. Jeez. <laughs> so, yeah, I yeah. mean, 
when you're in those big cities, you can even get into bad situations with the overpopulation and um, illnesses and disease spreading mm-hmm. very quickly. So, you know, there's that problem to think about, too, because we're there's a, the effect that, I mean, we haven't even talked about this at all, but the fact that everyone is becoming more and more immune to antibiotics. Mm. What happens when we're so grouped together and so close together that we have this super bug that travels extremely quickly? You know, there's just all of these. And that that could really harm our momentum to move to these more integrated, closely knit cities. Like imagine if some major super bug breaks out in like a few years then everyone is going to want to live in even more of a tightly enclosed castle where, you know, they're the master of their own domain and they're not interconnected with the rest of society. Bigger. Uh huh. Yeah. What were you thinking for the worst case, Tim? Well, I mean, the imagery you guys have described actually uh, conjures up to me um, kind of uh, an image of sometimes you see the the photos of like Mumbai where mm. there are these there's just the line is so drastic uh people yeah. have contaminated uh public water and uh they they don't really have clean air or really much of any uh kind of fresh natural resource for them for themselves but uh it's kind of juxtaposed side by side with the ultra rich um and the the haves who basically um you know, maintain their position by ensuring the divisions among the have-nots remain stark enough for them to stay distracted, uh, getting, you know, at each other's throats. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I think something that's terrifying for me is the um, climate refugee kind of uh, aspect of things. You, you, mm. you have many, um, many people who are political refugees now but uh, we're already starting to get the first wave of climate refugees uh, from places that are becoming inundated with water, um, where people have lived for you know centuries, um, and I only see that getting worse. And that actually might be you know might show a distinction between the cities that have versus the cities that have not, where cities that might not uh, have as much money at, or be as fortunate, um, those people might have to move to cities where people where they can afford to protect them. Um, but that would just, you know, increase these population issues uh, to be more hyper-focused. Right. In well, terms of... Especially, I was just going to say that with with yeah. the way that AI is going, think about all the countries out there that don't have some cool tech companies that are going to capitalize on the AI revolution. Like, it, those countries might have a really hard time competing in the the economic landscape of 2020 or 2040. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I think what's what's most likely to happen. Um, I'm I'm pretty pessimistic about the uh, global response to sea level rise, and um, I spent some time this summer in New Orleans. And one thing that you realize in New Orleans is that you're below sea level, and so they have these huge concrete walls called the the, le- the levees. Um, that are built just to hold back the Mississippi River. And when you actually walk to the river, you climb up the stairs and you look over the wall and the water's like above where yeah. your head was, street level. And it's just kind of, it's, it's, a, it's really kind of a weird perspective and it took a little getting used to, but, um, and you could see how when the water breached the levees, uh, how catastrophic it could be. And I honestly see that being the, um, the, pol- the solution that's the least political um, and it's going to take like people are going to be very slow to react. And then you're going to have another super storm that, you know, like Katrina is just devastating or Sandy is devastating. And, um, it, and it's going to have irreversible damage, at which point people are going to say we have to do something. And the only thing that you could jam through politically is a concrete wall around the whole city. And I, I honestly could see that happening. Um, you know, cities that have had problems with flooding before, like Rome or um you know, and any other city really on a river like that, they just end up building big concrete walls to hold back the water. And I think that's probably going to be what you see in a lot of coastal cities moving forward next hundred years. Yeah. Do you, do you think that's a long term viable solution? I mean, it's a matter of geometry, I, I think. 
it's probably going to be okay. I mean, I don't know if we if we don't you know reverse the trends right now, the sea level will continue to rise. So, floating you know, uh, cities. Yeah, that's you know water world. Yeah, exactly. So maybe maybe that's kind of a future, you know, because I don't know if Mars is as uh, attainable as we might think it is. Maybe just living in the ocean or on the water as a as a means to kind of defeat it is is the final solution. But yeah. that's uh, yeah. I'd be interested to see what a Atlantis like city would turn out to be. Well, they they just opened up Mars. the first underwater restaurant and the first underwater hotel. Really? Where's that? Um, I think it's, I forget. It's somewhere like off the coast of like Tasmania or Greenland or it's, I, I think it's actually near Iceland is where it is. Oh. But it's super cool because it's like you're you're dining with like your nice table set and then there's like sharks like swimming <laughs> next to you and um that's awesome. Yeah, I don't know how practical yeah. that is if it would have the same <laughs> benefits of a biodome or if it would just be a lot more difficult to keep up. I think I think floating on water would be more more, more viable than staying <laughs> underwater. Probably. Uh, yeah. But you would I mean I'd be, I'd be interested to see um, cuz I haven't done much reading on like where the desalinization efforts are. Because mm-hmm. that would be, you know, it, once, once you crack that code, then you can really, really start making big plans. Yeah, I mean, isn't that how Israel gets the majority of its water from desalination? Well, I think or, it's... Or they a get a very, big chunk of it. I, I, they, I think they might, but um, it's not a very uh, efficient process, regardless. Like, right. Financially right. and uh, energy-wise, but... Okay, cool. So any, anything else you guys want to say as far as the most likely scenario or, or any other final thoughts that you guys have for people who are thinking about where they want to live in a city or people who have some sway in government or what they can do or how to live your oh, life? I've, I've got kind of a PSA. Um, just because just someone advertises a project or a building as mixed use, it's not really as simple as that. You know, if you have a, a you know, an apartment building with a coffee shop on the ground floor, that's mixed use. But if you have 10 apartment buildings with 10 coffee shops on the ground floor all around each other, that's just as bland and, um, you know, right. uh, not helpful as, you know, the current kind of trends. So there's a lot of buzzwords that people will use, including mixed use. Um, and you just want to make sure that you, uh, you do your research to make sure it's not just a developer trying to pull a fast one on you. Yeah. And then when you know, when you view it, when you view it from a different perspective, you can kind of do a holistic thought process. So -hmm. you can say, what is this entire block? What does this entire block need? Can I I walk to get groceries? Can I, Mm -hmm. can I, you know, walk to send a a postcard or something? Uh, That's, I think that's more helpful questions than what is this developer brand it as? Yeah. Yeah, I would say my my final advice would be vote with your feet and vote with your dollar. Mm. Meaning if meaning do your research on like if you're still up in the air about what city you're going to live in, I would recommend checking out Nomad's list, traveling to some of the cities that are in your top 10 or whatever. And if you like a city, if a city has better nature, better uh, state taxes, whatever it is, better air quality, better nightlife, move there, live there for a while, pay them taxes. And I think a lot of these situations will work themselves out just simply by people voting with their feet and voting with their dollars and just keep pushing on the social front as well to get things done. And in that scenario, I think the future of cities looks bright. All right, thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Tim, for coming on to the podcast. We're going to talk about what has happened, what is currently happening, and what will inevitably happen. The past, the present, and the future. Our computer is broken.